Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Paper, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. On today's show, with a nod back to the science of Jurassic Park, we discover how clues to dinosaur evolution lurk in the depths of an amber mine. This fossilized tree sap, which we call amber, waited for millions of years with the mosquito inside. Not of the cinematic kind, mind you, but an exciting discovery nonetheless. It is preserving them in exquisite detail and telling us a lot about what these animals were like. Also coming up, author David Badanis tells us about Einstein's greatest mistake. Einstein thought he had found the hidden book of the universe. It was beautiful. It was simple to summarize. It was really clear. And why solar energy is due to pay back its carbon debt any time now. Every time the world's solar capacity doubled, the energy required to make the panel fell by about 12%. First, though, scientists have discovered a feathered tail from a dinosaur in petrified tree resin, a form of amber, in Myanmar. The discovery has revived a debate over why feathers evolved at all and why they appeared on animals that could not fly. With me on the line is Matt Kaplan, one of our science correspondents. Matt, welcome. Can you describe what exactly the researchers found? The researchers have found a piece of a dinosaur's tailbone And with it, they have found feathers stuck to the tailbone and covered in amber. Okay, so normally we saw fossils. This isn't a fossil. This is a fossil, but it's not any normal fossil. In Jurassic Park, you've got these scenes where they talk about collecting insects that have been encased in amber. Amber is fossilized tree sap. And the notion in Jurassic Park was, well, you know, if you have insects stuck in tree sap that freezes around them, you can collect dinosaur DNA if they have blood in them from dinosaur blood meals. That's not what these are, these guys are about, but they're looking at feathers that have been encased in amber. And they're, because the amber was sticky and liquid when it froze around the feather, it is preserving them in exquisite detail and telling us a lot about what these animals were like. Interesting. So what have we learned about what these animals are like? We have seen dinosaur feathers for about 20 years in the fossil record. Most of the feathers that we've seen have rotted away and just left impressions in the sediment for us to analyze. And so the detail there is relatively scant. What these feathers are showing us is that the dinosaur that died, which is, you know, it's like the size of a sparrow, Ken. Uh, It's a relative of Tyrannosaurus rex, but it's, it's, it's teeny tiny. And the feathers that we're looking at are... They're they're the same sort of structure as what we see in feathers that are ornamental in birds today. And that's important because it tells us a lot about what this dinosaur was using its feathers for. Can I presume the feathers were for mating and not for flight? The idea is that if it was an ornamental feather, it was likely colored and used for signaling or mating or perhaps a threat display. But what it suggests to us quite strongly is that 
this feather was not used for flight. And also, you know, many people have argued that perhaps feathers were used as an early form of thermoregulation to keep dinosaurs warm. And it doesn't look like that either. It's got this very specific structure that is, is not real rigid, relatively flexible, and that's indicative that this feather was being used for, for display purposes, which is something that so, a, a fair number of paleontologists have argued for over a number of years. But now we've got this, this feather that really supports it. My final question to you is, what does that tell us? How does that change our view of dinosaurs and the past and our own evolution? I think the big thing that this is telling us is that we've got to pay attention to all of the aspects of evolution, not necessarily just the, um, no pun intended, Ken, but the sexiest. You know, it's easy to look at feathers, and because we see feathers used so frequently for flight today, it's easy for scientists to say, well, feathers had to have evolved for flight. But it's essential that we look at the other options and say, well, you know, feathers are used in many species of bird for, for warmth. Feathers are used in many species of bird for display. Is it, could it be one of those other options as opposed to the one that immediately comes to mind? And paleontologists have been pondering this for a long time, but this is a, a gentle reminder that sometimes the, uh, the slightly less obvious option is one that's well worth considering. Great. Matt, really interesting. Thanks a lot. My pleasure, Ken. If you have any thoughts about feathered dinosaurs, do put them in an email and send them to radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio and contribute to the conversation with your expertise and knowledge. Next up, Albert Einstein's name is basically synonymous with genius. In the early 1900s, he came up with the general and special theories of relativity, the greatest advances in physics since Isaac Newton. But he was not without his faults. His personal life was tumultuous, and he spent the latter years basking in celebrity while chasing a universal theorem that other scientists could see was pretty much a dead end. So how did this happen? How did a leading scientist become incapable of producing work that even raised an eyebrow among his peers? To answer these questions, I recently spoke to the author David Badanis, whose latest book is called Einstein's Greatest Mistake. So David, welcome. What exactly was the mistake? It was actually a psychological mistake. A scientific mistake would be, you know, of some interest, but everybody makes scientific mistakes. His psychological mistake was one of doubling down. He had made a certain error in the past when he had given in to experimental evidence, and he vowed he was not going to do that again. What was the specific mistake that he made? In 1915, in the middle of war-torn Berlin, he came up with an amazing vision of the universe. It was really, really simple. Maxwell, the great Scottish uh, physicist of the 1800s, who Einstein revered, once said the universe has got to be either like a book or like a magazine. It was like a book. There's an order to it. We can look behind and we can see the order. It was like a magazine. It's this and that. There's no order and stuff. Einstein thought he had found the hidden book of the universe. It was beautiful. It was simple to summarize. It was really clear. Unfortunately, it predicted in 1915 that the universe was expanding. And every astronomer told Einstein, Einstein, the universe is not expanding. There's just a big glob of stars, our Milky Way galaxy. Beyond it is a void. So Einstein had to lacerate and eviscerate and change his beautiful, simple equations. He said, OK, I have to cancel the expansion of the universe. Ten years later, all the astronomers said to Einstein, 
Oy, were we mistaken. Oy is my uh, modern interpolation. Oy, were we mistaken. The universe is not, the universe is expanding. It's not static. Einstein said, I knew it. I hated modifying my equations. If I had stuck to my inner guidance, if I'd stuck to that vision of the universe being a simple, beautiful book, I would have been right all along. So making a mistake about whether the universe is expanding or not, eh, anybody could do that, especially anybody at the Einstein level. But then drawing the psychological conclusion, that's it. I've gone too far. I've been burned once. I'm never going to be burned again. That was his mistake. So Einstein makes this mistake as a young man, but it turns out that this psychological lesson will come back to haunt him in later years. What happened? What happened was the development of quantum mechanics, the study of things on the ultra-small level. And it turned out Einstein's earlier work had touched on that, and he had thought, well, if we can't see details on the ultra-small level, on the level of electrons and even smaller than that, it's simply because our experimental devices aren't good enough. We might have to say, oh, there's probabilities down there, like the froth on a wave. But we know if we look very closely, we can see, well, the froth on a wave comes from this bit of water hitting that bit of water, something like that. So Einstein said, yes, quantum mechanics is very beautiful, the study of the ultra-small. And at the moment, things might seem uncertain, like Heisenberg's famous uncertainty principle, but that's just a limit of our apparatus. If we get closer, we'll find more. However, the new generation of physicists, and including some people of Einstein's generation, they said, no, 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 it's not like that. This is fundamentally how things are. The froth that you see on waves is not just a chance event. It's fundamentally like that. You can't go beyond the froth. There's always going to be this uncertainty on the small level. Einstein, he wasn't smug, but he said, look, for 10 years, I made a mistake. I, uh, uh, for 10 years, I went in the wrong direction about astronomy because the experimental evidence was misleading. Are you absolutely sure your experimental evidence is right? They said, we're absolutely sure. He said, it can't be. The universe is a book. The universe is a clear book. We can open it. We can look inside. We can read it. You have to be wrong. And at the beginning, a lot of people went along with Einstein. kind of makes sense, doesn't it? But as the years went on, one by one by one, they moved away. And today, do we know for certain that Einstein was indeed wrong? On this particular topic, it does seem that Einstein was wrong. He thought that, well, maybe there are hidden variables underneath the surface that we can't quite uh, detect. Um, but work in the 1950s and 60s after his death showed that that's not the case. So what does the lesson of Einstein's arc of his career from rejecting evidence when he was correct to then rejecting evidence when, in fact, he needed to adopt it. Tell us about how science should advance and how we can lead our lives learning from mistakes. It's very hard to get the, uh, the direct answer. If you have a new idea, a company has a new product, or a person is trying something to express something new, you don't want to give up right away with the first flaw. Sometimes a product needs a little bit of tweaking or better marketing. Sometimes an idea you have in music or for a story, you have to work on a second or third draft. That's good. You need to do that. But what happens if it's still not working? There's no simple rule for saying exactly when it's going to end. But if you're aware of the problem, you have a chance of doing better than Einstein. Will Einstein's mistake tar the reputation of Einstein, or is it something that we can just look beyond? I'm actually touched by having learned about this mistake because it makes him more human. We often think that Einstein had this, he had two personalities. We think of him as this ridiculous man with the big white and gray flowing hair. We also think of a genius, actually more of a prophet than a priest. Somebody had gone into the higher realms and seen things and brought them back for us, things that nobody else could see. And how can you, how can you reconcile those two, the, the human being and this, this visionary? And I think his mistake is a way of bringing those two together. How interesting. David, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Next up, solar panels. Now, any manufacturing process carries with it an inevitable carbon footprint. 
even if you produce something as environmentally friendly as solar panels. But while a carbon debt has been built up, scientists say we've reached a crucial tipping point. Solar panels are now said to be giving back more on their carbon offset than they took to make. I'm joined now by the Economist science correspondent, Anano Bhattacharya. So first, what's going on? To make solar panels, you need to melt silicon. And that uh, requires a lot of energy. It's done in electric furnaces. And as we know, electricity is often produced by burning fossil fuels. Uh, in China, where a lot of solar panels are made nowadays, a lot more fossil fuels are used than in, say, Europe, where the energy mix is a bit cleaner. But either way, you need energy to make, these, uh, to make the panels. Once they start working, of course, they are making essentially free electricity uh, using solar energy. And that doesn't emit any greenhouse gases. So while we get the benefit of the energy in its use, they had a large carbon footprint at the outset when we were building them. But the manufacturing process improved, didn't it? This is where the study by uh, Wilfried van Sark of Utrecht University in the Netherlands comes in. So for the first time, what he and his colleagues looked at is how much that uh, manufacturing process had improved over time and what that meant for the sort of carbon debt that these uh, silicon panels carried. And what they calculated using that was, you know, how long does it take before the solar panels that are now in the world have paid off all of that carbon debt that came about as a result of their sort of dirty manufacturing. And there's optimistic news. There is. So back in the 1970s, which is when they start their analysis, for every kilowatt hour of electricity a solar panel generates, they were also putting out about 400 to 500 grams of carbon dioxide. That's as a result of their manufacture. So as the world has made more solar panels, the process of making them has become cleaner. And the researchers found that every time the world's solar capacity doubled, the energy required to make the panel fell by about 12%, and uh, the carbon dioxide emissions fell by somewhere between 17 to 24%. Now, just to be clear, the solar panels were always carbon negative, which is to say they were energy positive. Even if it was a very ungreen process to make them, they generated more electricity that was carbonless than they did in their production. That's the interesting thing. There's been disagreement about that. And certainly when the panels started being produced, you know, the estimates were they took over 20 years before they paid back the energy and the carbon dioxide emissions that had gone in. And that's why this new analysis is important. Now, solar panels made today are paying that debt off much faster, possibly in less than a year. So in less than a year, they pay back their, call it black debt, for the green technology. Yes, and possibly the best news of this analysis is that, according to Dr. Van Sark, it's quite possible that the world's solar panels paid off that debt as early as 1997, or under the more pessimistic criterion that he used in his model, that date would be around 2018. That's phenomenal. Thanks a lot, Anna. Thanks, Ken. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. To read our articles on dinosaur feathers and solar panels, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist in printer online. Don't forget, you can share your expertise and knowledge and get involved in the conversation by joining our Facebook page or tweeting us at Economist Radio. In London, this is The Economist. 
Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.